listeners. Thank you so much for tuning into the FemSouth podcast. If you're listening for the first time, FemSouth is a local podcast produced and edited in the American Deep South in Alabama. We are dedicated to demystifying feminism and to give voice to the experiences of women living in the South. We have a website, femsouth.com, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and get up to date on our most recent podcast episodes. Uh, We have an online book club that you can join and get into the conversation, and that's at FemSouth Book Club on Facebook. And we have a Patreon membership that you can join to help keep us producing quality podcasts for your listening pleasure. Uh, You can also get some really cool FemSouth merchandise like stickers and buttons that you can wear to show your support. You can find us at www.patreon.com slash FemSouth. And finally, please don't forget to go to iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcast and leave us a rating and some comments. We'd really appreciate it. So this is the second part of our podcast on trans feminism beyond the gender spectrum. In the first podcast, we talked about Sarah McBride's book, Tomorrow Will Be Different. For this podcast, though, we thought it would be nice to go out into the community and talk to trans people in our community. And this was a great experience. And what we learned, well, what I really learned doing this podcast was that there are so many different experiences. And doing this podcast has really opened my eyes to issues that are important to the trans community and how we as feminists can be better allies. So I'll be sharing three interviews that Sarah and I did. And one of the interviews is with a young teenage trans girl who has recently, maybe within the last few years, has come out to herself and to her family and is still dealing with issues of transitioning. Um, Another interview is with an older trans woman who has also just, you know, in the last few years come out and, and fully transitioned and is living her life now as a woman, but later on in her life. And finally, an interview with a mother of a trans teenage girl who is, again, still sort of in the um, in the throes of helping her daughter fully transition and deal with all the emotional ups and downs of being a teenager on top of everything else. And I just want to say that I know how much risk is involved in coming on to this podcast and speaking out, especially 
in the area that we live in, for those of you that don't know, I mean, we, we do live in a pretty progressive area in Fairhope, but we are surrounded by more conservative communities. And so it, it there aren't a lot of people speaking openly about these issues. And we are building support networks. Uh, as Sarah mentioned in our, in our last podcast, she is starting a PRISM chapter, which is to help LGBTQT plus youth in our area. So I'm honored and I'm so grateful that each one of these people willingly spoke with me about their experiences uh, because they want to be heard, but also because it's important to them to raise awareness in this area as well. So my first discussion is with Terry Ellen talking about gender dysphoria. Terry's experience is really interesting because she realized she was transgender during a time when there was no information or support. And so she had to repress her feelings and deal with her dysphoria for most of her adult life. Here's what she had to say. So thank you, Terry, for joining me today. I'm so happy to have you with me. Before we get started, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? My name is Terry Ellen. I am a trans woman. I'm 56 years old. I transitioned late in life. I knew I was transgender at a very young age, uh, for sure, when I was about 11 or 12, with inklings of it prior to that. I am a professional geologist. I work for the state of Alabama, second person to ever transition in state government, uh, which was quite terrifying. I am uh, the president and admin of um, Southern Transgender Alliance, which is a local transgender support group. I also serve as treasurer of the Rainbow Mobile Board, which is a local LGBTQ nonprofit. It started up about a year and a half ago to try to bring more unity within the LGBTQ community. I also serve with Prism United, which uh, serves primarily uh, high school kids, uh, LGBTQ, uh, 14 to 18. They've also started up a preteen group and an adult group for the families. So um, doing a lot of activism. That's a lot. <laughs> and uh, stay pretty busy. So, yeah. Well, I'm so happy to have you. Um, so you mentioned that you transitioned late in life. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? And how old were you when you did? When I was a teenager, this was back in 1970s. I knew what I was. I was back then the word was transsexual which is now sort of a subset of, of the transgender umbrella. Uh, at that point in time, there were no therapists. There were no doctors. There was no internet. There was no nothing to figure out what to do and how to do it. And so I just repressed it all and stayed that way for most of my life. Got married, had a child. And as time went on, my dysphoria, which is the disconnect between the brain and the body, the brain says you're one gender and your body says you're something else, and it creates, uh, at least for me, a huge dissonance. There were times I felt like I was going to fly apart in a million pieces. By the time I was in my mid-40s, it had gotten to the point where it was difficult just to function. There were days that dysphoria could hit me so hard, it would feel like a freight train coming down and just slamming into me. And it would be all I could do, not to fall down into a fetal position. Uh, it was extremely, extremely difficult and just continued to get worse. Um, my wife would ask me what was wrong with me, and I would just tell her I was tired. And that's when I sought out a um, therapist 
to figure it out. This was in 2013, six years ago. And I went through um, two, well, three therapists before I finally found uh, the third one was The Charm. The first one told me not to think about it and just read a book. That didn't work. Uh, the second one was pretty good, but she was in Montgomery and I had to do her by Skype and then just technical difficulties were not not good. Uh, the third one that I still have was simply amazing, very warm, very understanding, uh, let me talk and figure things out. I didn't go to get hormones to her. I didn't go to transition. I wanted to not implode and, and figure out how to keep my life together. Um, you know, as time went on, I had to figure out, got on hormones. And I fought this tooth and nail, even with the dysphoria, because of all the pain and anguish it causes our loved ones, our families. Because when you transition, everybody transitions around you, whether they like it or not. Some are accepting, some are not. Um, I've lost just about all my friends from my previous life, separated from my wife. But to be free from the dysphoria is, is just amazing. The first few times I felt normal when it was gone was just an amazing, amazing day to feel like, oh, my God, this is what normal feels like. This is simply awesome. And I tell people, a lot, they ask me what dysphoria feels like. And as a musician, I play guitar and I play bass. And so I try to explain to them that dysphoria is like playing guitar that's out of tune all the time. And we can illustrate that. Yeah, you brought your guitar into the studio. Okay, for a cis person, that is a person who is happy with what they were born as. You're born female, you identify as female, you never thought about being any other sex, and you're just perfectly fine in your skin, your guitar sounds like this. It's in tune, every string has harmony, there's overtones, there's just beautiful music that's made. Just really nice, everybody hears it that way. And life is good. When you're transgender, your guitar doesn't sound that way. And so I'm going to detune my guitar. And so using those same chords. That is dysphoria. Huge dissonance. Feel like everything is out of tune. Nothing works together. It's all you can do to keep playing. Everybody around you, though, may say it sounds beautiful. <laughs> but for you, it is horrible music. And it's there 24-7, all the time, 365, every year of your life. And it grows old in dealing with it, and that gets worse with time. And so that's what my dysphoria was like. Not everybody's dysphoria is the same. But if you have dysphoria, it is some type of dissonance, disconnect from your brain and your body, and you seek to tune yourself. And transition does that for us, socially, hormones, surgery if necessary, depending on how severe your dysphoria is. To rid yourself okay. of the dysphoria is to some, and again, it depends on your degree, severity varies from person to person. Some it is so slight they don't feel like they have to do anything. For others like me, it was to um, 
at least in some ways socially, transition to uh, at least abate it, bring it down to a level that was more manageable. Uh, that helped a lot. But to truly remove it for myself and others feel this way is to go on hormones, to get the hormone that your brain is like craving and uh, moving from male to female, that is estrogen. And so I have gone through basically puberty 2.0 and had a female puberty. And it was so much better than the first one. <laughs> uh, it's very calming. Uh, it's euphoric. Uh, just the first few doses, you know. It's kind of a weeder drug for us as trans people. If you're not, not really trans and go, you go on hormones and you hate it, you're not transgender. Interesting. Really quickly, you will know whether it's right for you or not, because you will not like the effects if you're not not transgender. Just, I mean, some people may argue with that, but I've uh, heard numerous stories from so many others to that effect. So it's somewhat anecdotal, but I, I believe it to be true. Yeah. And it's just really nice to feel good in your own skin. And then, of course, all the physical effects that it has we you know go through a female puberty and our hips get wider and we get soft skin and um we get paler because we lose melanin and our scent changes and we grow breasts every human has breasts whether they're developed or not all depends on how much estrogen you get in your system and so um we develop them the old-fashioned way uh so it's been really good uh really like this puberty. And it's interesting that for you, we are seeing a lot more transgender people being able to transition at an early age. And so perhaps having to experience uh, dysphoria for a shorter period of time. Right. right. Yes. And then also, I think if you are fortunate enough to have a family that supports you in that journey at a small, at a young age, then you don't have that compound but that wasn't the case for you. And so uh, no, I didn't I didn't tell anybody. Uh my plan what I chose, quote unquote, chose when I was a teenager was to never tell anybody to go to my grave with it. Cuz what was the point? There was no win-win at that time or even for a long time afterwards to even really even know how to go about doing it or even where to get estrogen or a doctor or a therapist and mm-hmm. So I repressed it and thought I could do it my whole life with just sheer willpower. It didn't work. It, it never goes away. I don't, it just never goes away. Tried praying it away. That didn't work. In this next interview, Sarah talks with Natalie, a young trans girl about gender dysphoria and what it's like for her. Let's listen to her tell us about what it's like for her. Hi, this is Sarah with Femme South, and I'm sitting here with my friend Natalie. Natalie, would you like to introduce yourself? Um, I'm Natalie. I'm a 17-year-old trans girl. I live in Fairhope, Alabama, and uh, I live with my mother and her boyfriend. And uh, right now, I'm just getting college stuff figured out. So, Can you tell me what dysphoria means and what, how, how it, the experience feels to you? Um, so dysphoria is really just a disconnect between, um, anything really, uh, like the opposite of euphoria, like a disconnect between, um, emotions or feelings or, uh, oneself. So like, and, uh, you could use it as a general term for, um, like people with 
body dysmorphia are people who uh like psychologically their brain's definition of um the way that they perceive themselves doesn't match their actual perceived outward uh appearance and that's what really dysphoria is a disconnect between the way you feel and perceive your reality and the way that people perceive you and your apparent reality and tons of cisgender people experience dysphoria like whether it's acne and being uncomfortable with that or being slightly uh skinnier or you know putting on too much muscle and feeling uncomfortable or not enough muscle and feeling uncomfortable that you can't uh be you know uh, you look at oh there's something weird about my nose that's <laughs> that's dysphoria now gender dysphoria is different because it's more perceived in the way that your body reacts to certain um, hormonal and psychological balances uh, or, or physical things. Like, for instance, um, secondary sex characteristics uh, like uh, breast or lack thereof or, um, you know, genitalia or um, even your facial structure. And that's where facial feminization surgery comes in do you experience dysphoria not all trans people do experience no, dysphoria. Um, not all transgender individuals experience uh dysphoria and some have social dysphoria and not physical dysphoria which i like to look at social dysphoria it's pretty simple just like the way people perceive you and not having any bearing on that and a lot of times dysphoria is things that you just can't control i can't control certain hormonal uh, imbalances currently because I'm trying to get hormones and um, right now I really can't do anything about it other than what I am doing to try to get hormones but you know feasible you can't you can't control what hormones are in your body in it from a biological perspective or you can't change um, uh, your facial structure you know you, you can through certain things and that's why trans healthcare is important but like biologically if we're talking about purely like um physiologically from a medical sense no you you can't change your you know genitalia you can't change your face you can't change um in certain cases your voice or your um hair length now you can do certain steps that uh counteract that where you were now that medical technology is caught up to a certain point we can alter those things uh estrogen hormone replacement therapy testosterone you know uh, which is uh, the uh, transgender men's version of hormone replacement therapy, you know, uh, obviously. And, you know, we've got things like facial feminization surgery. And for some people, they can train their voice to sound more feminine, which I'm working on that. It's been taking me years. I've definitely made some progress, but I've been told it's androgynous, I've been told it's more masculine, I've been told it's more feminine. So I really don't know what people think. Because people do this other thing where they think that, oh, being nice and sparing my feelings helps me. No, it hurts me. But anyway, um, uh, my jawline bothers me. My nose structure sometimes bothers me. My uh, chest area and my genitalia uh, make me uncomfortable. And it really only bothers me when like uh, I, I, I'm aware of those things. And even talking about it uh, brings it up, but doesn't uh, give me dysphoria. It just brings attention to those areas, and it makes me uncomfortable thinking about uh, having them. And uh, as as anat as anatomy goes, and um, for me, social dysphoria comes in the sense of like when when my actual gender 
isn't the perceived gender. So like when people, not 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 just when people dead name me or misgender me, it's a lot of the times when people don't perceive me as a gender I identify as. Like when people blatantly disregard certain, you know, aspects of my gender that come inherent to the kind of person I am and and um my gender identity. And now there's a opposite to that. There's gender euphoria, which is like, you know, when there's a sweet guy, a cute guy, and he holds the door open for me. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> or like when somebody's like, you go, girl. Or like when I'm just, you know, genu- genuinely perceived as the gender that I am, you know. And um, I think there's so much psychological basis for gender identity. There's definitely... Maybe you might not prescribe to certain brain structures being different, but there's definitely certain things in psychology that are important to gender identity that I really feel like that I don't even pick up on sometimes that people will notice about me as more feminine. And that's a lot of the reason that uh, some people find it harder to uh, pass socially because they find themselves doing certain habits and traits that their uh, sex is. Uh, their perceived sex gender identity like amap people will um you know uh do do a certain thing with their hands or walk a certain way and i really don't feel like that's a valid reason to devalidate people because it's one of those things where when you've developed a certain psychological behavior your entire life and you have to for some reason present overly masculine you get certain things in your head that you just don't think of and that you don't get out and that it's hard for some people to perceive unless they're noticing those things. And, um, you know, some people will pick out those things and be like, oh, that person isn't cisgender. Um, and I don't think that's right because regardless of whether or not gender identity is a valid psychological phenomenon or it is a choice, it's still something that is important to people and is a part of them that should be respected and work to identify with them as. And now we're going to hear from Mary, who is the mother of a young teenage trans girl, about what it was like when she found out her daughter was transgender. Um, I think what's important to keep in mind is that probably the younger that a transgender person can identify with being trans the less amount of time they have to present counter to how they identify and therefore the less time they have to struggle with dysphoria. I think it's really important to identify young and to help people go through whatever process they need to go through in order to deal with the dysphoria and present with the gender that they identify with. And so this is what Mary had to say. What was it like when you found out? Well, first of all, how old was your daughter when you found out? And what was that experience like for you? Uh, 15 years old. It was a shock at first. Uh, She had had lots of problems um, socially, emotionally, mentally, and um, had been suicidal. So it was just... It was a shock, but I didn't even know that that was something that was realistic at the time when she said that because she had so many other things going on. When you did find out, did that 
kind of explain a lot of the other emotional problems that she had been having? Did you feel like a sense of relief or did it just, um, what, what was your sort of initial feeling once you found out? Uh, when I first found out, like I said, I, I didn't really know. I, I was kind of shocked and then I did lots of research and at, the more I talked to her, uh, the more I understood that this was a real thing. I studied it. And then when I started thinking about things in the past and things she had said, um, I started thinking, well, this could make sense. But there were never really signs like my little boy put on women's clothing, never tried on my clothes. You know, people think, oh, well, if they didn't dress up, they might not be. That's not true. Um, Everybody's different in the way they come out. And so for me, this is all I knew. Of course, I've met lots of people and done lots of research in the past year and a half. So uh, it it was just really a process of, of coming to the realization that this was really, I really had a transgender female. But from day one, I loved her unconditionally and and I accepted the fact that she wanted to be called her name and referred to in the proper pronoun of she because I could tell that made her happier and and it improved her attitude. So it kind of started like that. So you're listening to Fem South. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Well, I wanted to know what women in the South are thinking about feminism and to give Southern women a voice in the feminist movement. Do you consider yourself a feminist? I I think I do, yes. Absolutely. I don't like defining myself as a feminist because when I tell someone I'm a feminist, they automatically go that way. While I will say, yes, I am a feminist, there's, I know that there's going to be explanation after that. Like, I'm going to have to explain myself. So, so I feel like this Southern culture, especially in the black culture, we were always like, you know, men first, women second. And then also I didn't know what feminist meant. I feel like I am a feminist. I'm just not an aggressive feminist. I'm a feminist. I'm probably a quieter feminist. And I just pick and choose which things to be stronger feminist advocate about. I do believe feminism is for everybody. And we're back. You're listening to Fem South. Our next discussion point is coming out in a religious community or in a religious family, which is a pretty big topic if you're trying to come out in the South, right? We begin again with Terry and her experience coming out to her congregation in which she and her wife were actively involved. Let's talk about your your faith. You are a Christian and you were heavily involved in the church before transitioning and before coming out. Uh, tell us what that was like to do that and how your your church community uh, accepted that or, or didn't accept that. Everybody tells you to pray, to pray it away, so to speak, is what it's sort of known as. It, you know, you have the faith of a mustard seed that... Uh, God will grant you your prayer and, and you'll be free. You'll have your miracle. I never got a miracle. In fact, I never had an answer for that prayer until it was the spring of 2016. I had already started transitioning and I was terrified of where I was going. 
and I did not want to go there, causing such pain and anguish for my wife and family is extremely hard and difficult to do, even when it's in your own best interest to survive. And I was praying one day very fervently, angrily, asking God to take this away. I didn't want this, didn't want to transition, just just take it away. And I got a very loud no in my head, very emphatic. It didn't come out of my conscience, because I've heard God before. He's very short and sweet. <laughs> and that was it. It stopped my prayer. It didn't make me happy um, to know what I had to do. It was a question of being obedient. If God says, no, he's not going to take this away. The only other choice I had left was either die, let it kill me. The stress of it was already causing me all kinds of physical issues. Take my own life, which I'm... Never considered, thought about it, never had a plan, or transition. That was the only way to live for me. That's the only known successful treatment for what I am, is to transition socially, medically, hormonally. It fixes us. But it also gives us a lot of pain and anguish because of how society looks at us and how they treat us and families and... We're just seen as a freak or a, a fetish or some sort of sexu- sexual thing, and it's, it's none of those. It's just to be tuned to who we are, like when I was playing the guitar. We just want to be tuned and not have the dissonance and to live life and to be able to love and have a job and get medical care just like everybody else. So after that, it was I still was not a happy camper and fought it for a little more and I was doing a Bible study in um, spring of 2017. It was about fear, dealing with the fear of this, fear of transition, the fear of the consequences, the fear of divorce, the fear of losing your job, the fear of not getting medical care. It's just a constant litany of fear after fear after fear after fear. And um, the closing thing of that, it was like a 12-week program of doing Bible verses about fear and study and whatnot. And the the closing discussion of it was just, I just felt like it was God telling me that, like, you know, you'll be okay. You just have to step out of the boat onto the water of transition and have faith you'll be okay. And that's what I did. That was the final thing for me. And it's been good, amazingly. How has your church community, though, responded? I'm interested in that because I find that fascinating, especially given what you know many churches espouse here in the South about the LGBTQT community. And The church I was at at the time, I was um, leading a Bible study group with my wife and um, been dealing with the dysphoria and dealing with coming out, and my wife already knew about me being transgender, and there was a lot of discussion with the pastor about, you know, to lead your group and teach them how to be vulnerable, <laughs> to share your deepest, darkest secrets. And so I kept feeling nudged by the Holy Spirit to come out to our Bible group. And so to do so, of course, I have to come out to my pastor. So we did, sat down, talked to him, explained it all. 
Uh, he told me he couldn't condemn me from a New Testament viewpoint, which I already knew that. Uh, there's only really one thing in the whole Bible, and that's in the Old Testament, where it says to wear the clothes of the other sex and makes you an abomination. Well, you know, if to wear the clothes of opposite sex is an abomination, every woman who wears pants, which is male clothing, basically is an abomination. So, you know, he didn't condemn me in that way either, but it was very much a feeling that I was damaged goods sort of after that point. Did come out to the Bible group. It went really well. There were lots of tears and, and whatnot that night. Um, they all claimed to be supportive and told me they would be with us all the way. But it quickly became awkward. I was told I couldn't lead the group anymore. And one guy thought that I should be um, exercised, that he thought I was possessed by the devil. So, um, unfortunately, it, may, it has made me jaded somewhat. Even though I've stayed a Christian, to other Christians, that a lot of it is just pretty words, that actions are something totally different. I wasn't, you know, shown bigotry or anything, but I wasn't exactly shown love and forgiveness either. And that was um, a great disappointment. So, but I found another church after separating from my wife, um, a church over in Mobile. It's called Open Table, which is a United Church of Christ denomination that is open and affirming. And uh, it's been a very, very good place. Ellen Sims is the pastor, and she's been absolutely wonderful for me. So, that's great. That's great. So we talked to Natalie about what it's like coming out in a religious community. In her case, it's a religious family, her father and her stepmother. Unlike Terry's situation, Natalie's struggle with the church comes from her family's way of dealing with her being trans. They don't really accept it. They force her to go to a therapist that shames her and uses her dead name. And they force her to go to church. Let's hear her talk about her experience. So the first time, though, basically, we had a, air quotes, <laughs> gender therapist. And now I wanted a gender therapist, somebody to help me work through my emotional things. Now, they took me to a Christian, like, rehab place. And at first I thought, oh, pretty sure it was a conversion place. Now, it wasn't, like, explicitly, like, they weren't sitting me down being like, you need to stop believing this. But um, well, one, I was made feel, felt guilty for trying to talk to the doctor about uh, hormones. Um, I was made to feel guilty about making it apparent that I wanted hormones. And I was also told that um, I'm burdening other people with trying to transition. And a lot of that came from like they were they were basically like upset and instead of accepting me, they had this like gig cognitive dissonance. They forced me to go to church every Sunday. I got, <laughs> needless to say, I was super depressed. And it mainly really wasn't for my dysphoria, which it did definitely not help. It was a big problem for me because I felt really, um, everything's felt raw and everything felt outside of myself when, cause I was, my gender was constantly devalidated and, um, I was very, you know, in bed all day couldn't get out of bed i was 
sleeping all day. I was just uh, listening to music and, you know, uh, just really, it was awful. Um, I couldn't think, um, I couldn't sleep and I would be awake all night and I would sleep all day. Uh, I was, I was, I was, I was like either asleep all day or awake all night. And sometimes it'd be both, <laughs> but, um, you know, it was really hard. Uh, like that blind melon song, you know, just <laughs> stuck, you know, I, I liked seeing the rain outside, um, and it started getting bad to the point where I couldn't be inside because of how devalidating it was and stressful it was to not uh, have have my gender. Well, like it wasn't that like I was casually dismissed. It it it, it kind of felt like I was ridiculed because they would dead name me intentionally many times on purpose, and then every Sunday um, we wouldn't always go to church. But what they would do is my. Uh, other side of my family my biological father and my stepmother um we, we would watch church we, we went to a mega church it was awful i'm sorry if you like mega churches but um it was really difficult for me um and we would watch they had this podcast it was called world outreach um you probably know them maybe um they would have this uh like podcast on uh, facebook live and we would watch it every Sunday, or we would go to church. Usually we go to church, but sometimes we couldn't make it. We'd watch the podcast and they would make me sit through it. And it was very difficult for me because, um, at the time I wasn't like atheist, but I was agnostic because I was really questioning the faith because like, um, it really hurt me because I, I, I was told no matter what, um, one, you were born into sin. You have to go to our church. You have to be doctrinated. And, and, and I, I was terrified of going to hell. I, I didn't want to go to hell. And, and I started being like, this is sick. I'm told that I'm going to be tortured and suffer for my entire life because of something that I can't control and feelings that I have to not, not only do are these feelings like, um, you know, important, but, but they're hard to deal with. Mm-hmm. So, so not only is God putting me through this, um, think something that hurts and is eating away at me. Um, but he's going to eternally torture me for it. it. It just didn't sit right with me. I was like, that's no, it makes no sense. Why would a God of love put me through that? We went to church and I saw these fallacies and these, like the fact that there was a Starbucks in the church really kind of grossed me out because at the time I was religious, but, um, I wasn't conservative, but I was traditionalist. I, 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 I wanted my place to worship, not to be sterile, but to be some place of like, not necessarily like painfully serious. Like I like churches where it's like, you get up and clap and you sing and I was um it was hard for me at the mega church and um basically I was struggling to understand some of the ideologies that they were kind of felt like they were shoving down my throat um a lot of the metaphors just didn't make sense and and were trying to make me feel like bad for mistakes I made you know un un you must listen to your elders unquestionably your parents are always right. Um, don't cast stones, but if somebody's in, in a religious circle is casting stones at you, you have to just deal with it and accept that they're right and you're wrong because they're smarter than you and better than you. How was that feeding into your transition experience? Well, at the time it wasn't an overwhelming sense of like, um, oh, everybody at the church is being mean to me. It wasn't like that kind of church. Nobody really knew each other. They just went and went like, but it really just didn't help my self-esteem because I didn't have the option not to go to church and I had to sit through and listen to those sermons. And, um, 
at the time it really wasn't um hurting me in a trans sense and i did constantly think oh should i ask the pastor um being trans is a sin just to kind of mess with them and see like get a reaction um but i i ended up just being like it's not worth it it's messed up so mary also has something to say about experiencing what it's like to face people who have a who discriminate against her child based on their religion and in her case it's coming from her family so um, you can really hear the emotion in her voice she does get very emotional and i i really empathize with her being a mother myself they say the devil is in her her father stepmom grandmother and her aunt that she was very close to. Now it's just been such a shock that people would judge and discriminate and the way they do, especially a a child, there's enough going on. Um, You know, you don't have to accept it, but you know, if, if it's, it's been, that's what's been so hard is just to understand I have to try to understand their point of view for me to even be able to deal with it which is really scary because I've never wanted to think about what it would be like to be in their shoes and that's been really really hard for me it's taken a lot of (laughs) just a lot of learning and I've had to look at myself about lots of different things and I've grown a lot but it's 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 kind of sad but then it's made me a better person at the end of the day I will say I've been blessed in that I have a wonderful support system of very close friends that I've had for many years that have known my child for many years and what's been wonderful is it's probably the people I surround myself with they are non-judgmental people and very open-minded so it's made it a lot easier and she feels really comfortable around my friends they're more like our family Uh, so that's been really great and we try to just keep those people close so our last discussion points are about passing, misgendering, and deadnaming, which are all concerns that trans people can face and on many different levels. We start with Natalie first this time and, and listen to her explain the difference between misgendering and deadnaming and her perspective on both of those things. And then we move into Terry's discussion about passing and why passing is important to her and how it's a matter of safety and, of course, aligns with her desire to be seen as a woman. Can you tell me a little bit about dead naming versus just accidentally um, misgendering or misnaming? Now, dead naming is one of those interesting things where I, I don't experience it much anymore. And I, I, I genuinely, there's some people who have to adjust and who will slip up uh, if they've known somebody for an extended period of time, maybe even their whole life. And it's hard for certain people to adapt to those things. But what I've found out, it's, it's misgendering happens. People do it after you've come out for a long time, even maybe if you, if you completely pass. Um, but... I found that deadnaming really doesn't happen on accident much, especially 
when you're around people that you've uh, not known for an extended period of time. And what I've learned is a lot of transgender people uh, feel, one, insanely devalidated because they feel like it's... That is one of the... I don't want to get too sidetracked, but that is one of the most aggravating things. Never ask a trans person what their real name is. My real name is Natalie because that is a more appropriate example of my identity and my uh, presentation publicly. If you dead name me, not only are you completely ignoring my identity as a person, but you're dehumanizing me because you're chalking up my entire personality and and everything I am to just a choice. And regardless of whether you think it's a choice or not, is one of the most disrespectful things. Even if you aren't intending to be mean, don't ask a trans person what their real name is. One, it doesn't matter what their dead name is, which is the name that they've that they were born with, that's on their birth certificate before they get their birth certificate legally changed. What their parents uh, chose their name. Um, it would be like if an African person after the Civil War change their slave name that they were given by their owners to their um uh americanized name now that might sound like an extreme example but it really feels that liberating when you comfortable with something that really uh identifies you more intentionally and when you intentionally disregard that and ask them what their name was before they were able to be comfortable with their identity. Not only is that insanely disrespectful, but it is rude. And not only is it a guaranteed way to give a trans person a bad impression of you and probably not want to talk to you again, but it's a guaranteed way to make them either upset, devalidated, or annoyed. And if you if you mess up somebody's new trans name if they change their name if you dead name them you can easily apologize and you know try to get the because i know it's hard if you've known them your whole life but just respect that and do not ask them what their real name is because if they tell you their name that's their real name if you ask me what my real name is it's natalie and the thing about misgendering is yes it happens there is nothing wrong with one if you ask somebody it is a lot more respectful to ask somebody what their pronouns are and what their gender identity is to not ask. Now, it's okay if you don't want to ask and it's uncomfortable for you. It happens. Even as a trans person, there are certain non-binary people who don't fall on the spectrum that I'm used to understanding. It's, you know, I I get kind of um, caught off guard, not not just caught off guard. And um, for people who have not been around trans people, just accepting a gender on the binary um like uh he and him and her and she it's hard for them and and it catches them off guard so there's nothing wrong with making a mistake and asking somebody what their gender identity is you know do you identify as a man or a woman that's totally valid and i don't think any trans person is going to get mad and if they get mad it's their fault don't feel bad (laughs) because there's some trans people like that anyway um, you should respect their ag- gender identity, though, whether it seems like it's a perceived phenomenon or it seems like something that uh, is a choice or um, something that you feel doesn't deserve to be validated. It's still their identity. It's still something you should respect regardless, because um, respect isn't necessarily about believing 
their belief system or believing what they believe. It's just respecting what they do believe. And, and you don't have to conform to their beliefs. You don't have to act like you 100% agree, but you have to respect them because they're a person and every person deserves respect. So Sarah and I, in our last episode, talked about passing. And I'd like to talk to you and get your perspective on passing, especially since you are in a community where I'm sure that the more you pass, the more you're going to be accepted, especially in the church community, right? Um, so what is your take on passing? Can you talk about that and, and your experience with it? Passing is, of course, to be taken as the sex you identify as in society. Being a trans woman, I want to be taken as a woman in going to the grocery store, the doctor, shopping, using the restroom, um, changing rooms, and, and you know trying on clothes. I want to be seen as a woman, period. Not as a trans woman, but as a woman. And to the degree that you succeed in doing that is called passing. Some of us pass really well. Some of us do not. And there are some people in the community who will uh, get angry at people who pass really well and call it a privilege that they have something that they don't. And there is some anger in the community about that. For me to pass, um, I never thought I could. It's a scary thing when you go on hormones because you have no idea what you're going to get. The younger you are, the better results usually you're going to have. But even then, it's still a roll of the dice. Hormones affect everybody differently. Uh, there's a mantra in the community uh, called, your mileage may vary. Because <laughs> you can see somebody who like wins the hormone lottery, and they look like they've been a woman all their life, and they're just beautiful and a great figure, and they don't need any surgery, blah, 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 you know. And then there's others that... You can't tell hormones do anything to at all, but inside they're the same. And so we go through the same sort of beauty standards that all women suffer from. We get that as well. We get it from each other. Um, we constantly, you know, we sort of like our 12-year-old girls to a degree that want to be told we're pretty and, you know, want to be affirmed and, and, and all that. So uh, passing for me, though, is to be safe. It's a huge safety factor to be just taken as a woman and not to be thought of as a guy in a dress or someone who's pretending, you know, or just wants to get in the women's bathroom to do something horrible. So passing gives us that huge degree of safety when people just think we're just the women that we are. And at church, yeah, that's, it was huge. Uh, to be able to pass and be seen as just another woman at church. Did you go back, though, into the same church community? I did not. Okay. No, when when my wife and I separated, I left that church. Okay. I wasn't made to leave, and the pastor was okay with me staying. But to transition there would have made a huge distraction for the congregation. I would have been a huge topic of conversation. Um, constant questions about me. It would have been extremely bad, horrible for my wife to go through that. Um, I didn't want to do that to her or the pastor. And so I, I left on my own. Yeah, He said he was okay, but 
Anyway, I don't think he really was. <laughs> yeah. Well, so what do you think about then those who don't want to transition or those that say that, you know, there's a great cost and expense to transitioning that, um, you know, wouldn't it be better to just somehow or another, and this is, I think, where feminism steps in too, is to just get rid of these gender binaries where you have to, if you want to be pass as a woman, you know, follow these guidelines on what it means to even be a woman. And And Sarah and I talked a lot about the gender spectrum and how even the gender spectrum, this binary between masculine and feminine, where, you know, an extreme femininity is on one side and an extreme masculinity is on the other side, that 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 concept doesn't even really exist. That's a social construct. So finding a way out of that whole dynamic, which is problematic for everybody, wouldn't that be a little bit more beneficial? Or is that even talking about that a privilege? if you know what I'm saying. Right. For someone who doesn't pass well in our society, it is a huge matter of, of safety. They get belittled. They get dis- discriminated against. They're more likely to be fired at work uh, for being somewhat of a spectacle. And so, yeah, you're right. I mean, the binary is problematic for us because of the standards that come with it. But those are like self-imposed um, not every society has that, and in Western culture, it's especially bad about the binary. Native Americans, or you know, indigenous people in this uh, North America, had two spirit. They had several genders. Uh, they were esteemed. They were the shamans. They were the holy people. Uh, they weren't weren't vilified like mm-hmm. we are today in our society. But again, there are people who are very, very masculine, and they are naturally so. There are people who are very, very feminine and are naturally so. I think there are very, very few people in our society who are either one of those extremes. And we're all on this huge spectrum. So many points on that line from ultra-masculine to ultra-feminine. There's a syndrome called androgen insensitivity syndrome. These are genetic males but they have a genetic defect where their bodies cannot use testosterone no matter how much you give them. When they're born, they look like girls anatomically. Most times they don't have a uterus. Occasionally they will. They don't have ovaries. They have testicles, but they never descend. And their bodies can't use testosterone. Testosterone is what gives you the penis and the scrotum. Without that, you don't get it. You get a vagina and vulva. You look like a girl. You're identified as a girl. And they're treated as girls. They think they're girls. It's like testosterone is the the thing that makes us different. We all start out as girls. If something goes wrong in the testosterone arena, you're going to be a girl. That's mm-hmm. just part of it. And so there is some nature in being masculine and feminine. But it's us as a society that really puts on the box, you know, and wants to box everybody in. It's, you're female, you've got to be pretty, you got to be wear makeup, you got to have a dress and heels and da-da-da. And if you're masculine, then you're going to be in the sports. You don't dance, you don't do art, you play football and baseball, and that's what you are, and grow a beard. And, you know, we put these strictures on ourselves. 
And so, yeah, it would be great if that wasn't so. Whether it would help us as transgender people, I would still want to be a woman because that's how I identify myself. Some of this is from social construct, I guess. You know, it's kind of like when you're a kid and you want to pretend you're a fireman, you put on the hat and the coat and, you know, because it marks you as a member of the team. And so when you transition to being female, it's makeup and dresses and whatnot. That's the uniform of the team. And so you want to fit in, you want to assimilate and you want to be accepted. And it would be if it was flipped that and women wore flannel shirts and blue jeans and hobnail boots. Some women want you know, to wear those things. <laughs> I know, but if it was the societal construct right. that most females did that, then that's what I would have wanted. Because that's what the team wears. Yeah, I see. Yeah. Nice. Okay, it's three o'clock. I have to go pick up my son <laughs> from school. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, oh. So uh, thank you so much, Terry. Thank you. So much for having me. This was a complete joy. Okay. Thank you for joining us again on the Fem South podcast. Sarah and I mentioned in the first episode, episode 11, how you can get involved with any of these local organizations to help the LGBTQ plus in our area. Uh, you can reach out to us at femsouth.com or message us on Facebook or Instagram. And we can get you connected to Sarah Rutledge Fisher, who is starting a PRISM chapter here in Fairhope, or Terry Ellen, who you heard on this podcast. She is a member of several boards in Mobile and Baldwin County. So we can get you connected if you want to really help raise awareness or just support the community. So please rate us on iTunes, subscribe to our newsletter at FemSouth.com, join our book club. We'd love to have you at FemSouth Book Club on Facebook and go over to Patreon and sign up to be a member to support us and keep us going. Until next time, you're listening to Fem South. Oh.